This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. We're here with Pat Sapinsley from NYU's Urban Future Lab, talking clean tech for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Uh, Pat, can you just tell us, perhaps to start off, uh, what got you into clean tech, and uh, and when was that? Oh, that's a, a long time ago. Um, I was at home with my children, having closed a successful architectural office in order to spend time with my kids and rethink a bit. And while I was rethinking, I spent a a lot of time studying online about uh, climate change and realized that architects were responsible for a lot of the problems and that what I really wanted to do was help solve those problems that we had created by doing poorly insulated buildings that had to be climate controlled 12 months a year with non-operable windows. It was you know, a shame and I had been part of it and I wanted to do what I could to fix it. And so after... I guess I emerged in 1990. Uh, I think I emerged in about, I'm trying to remember when my kids were born, uh, probably 2005. And at that point, I went to work for a venture capital fund called Good Energies that was investing in solar and wind and related technologies in order to have an effect on the climate problem. And they understood that they needed an architect because you can generate as much renewable energy as you want, but if you pour it into buildings that have leaking windows and poor HVAC systems and poor insulation, then you haven't really accomplished very much. So I worked at Good Energies for many happy years, well, learning was... about venture capital. Pardon me? Oh, keep, keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I worked at Good Energies for many happy years learning about venture capital. It was a new career, and I wasn't so young, but it was very exciting. And after Good Energies closed, uh, which pretty much happened as cheap Chinese solar was being manufactured overseas, uh, and the business model for European manufactured solar was not so rosy, um, I then went to... Uh, the Wies Institute at Harvard, helping them to scale up uh, biomimetic technologies out of their labs. And I also simultaneously started two startups of my own, one of which was just a consulting company to help young startups in this field, and the other of which was an LED lighting company that offered lighting as a service before anyone understood what that was. Then came to NYU about five years ago, to take over at the Urban Future Lab, which had been up and running since the year 2009. We've just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And I can tell you a little bit about the Urban Future Lab if you'd like. Yeah, we'll just go back uh, for a moment. Just I'm, I'm curious. Um, 2005 is when I started grad school for city and regional planning and, and solar and wind energy were quite minor back then compared to where they are today. Uh, I didn't start covering clean tech for another four, uh, three or four years five years really seriously um and it's just it's such a dramatic for you know anyone who's been in the industry knows that's been such a dramatically different era different uh age when you know there's a lot of hype about solar and wind getting close to ripe and there's a lot of i think a lot of money and and effort put into 
uh, solar and and wind, you know, startups and, and businesses. And then, as you said, you know, the Chinese came in, uh, so you know, sort of <laughs> undercut U.S. and European solar companies, and, and to an extent, some some wind some of the wind share, but not nearly as much. Uh, can you speak just a little bit about how that kind of clean tech business environment and sort of clean tech entrepreneurial world has changed from you know 2005 till uh, till today? Like just a bit more of a kind of I guess story around the atmosphere of, of that that world. Well, I don't have the numbers at the tip of my tongue, but as you know. Uh, the advent of cheap Chinese solar has really been a wonderful thing. Um, I, I am not going to bash uh, the Chinese industry at all because it has helped us to make solar very affordable, in fact, competitive. Um, there are more jobs now in solar and wind in America than at Google and Facebook combined. I think I've also heard that there are more jobs in wind and solar in America than at traditional generation uh, facilities. Oh yes, so, far, far more. I mean, wind and solar, hundreds of thousands of jobs, and like coal has a you know couple dozen thousand maybe. Uh, oil and wind and solar by far more jobs. You know, the Solar Energy Foundation has good stats on this for solar, and AWEA for wind, and um, and like you said, they're heavily installer jobs, so they're heavily. Uh, reliant on cheap solar panels, which has been a blessing from from China making that a, a country priority. But um, but yeah, was, uh, I think well keep keep going on that. But um, I guess just more the question is uh, how have how have entrepreneurs and and uh, the business world sort of seen seen that shift and shifted their attention and their focus to sort of match what's uh, what's what's already available and what where the gaps are. So, uh, uh, as we've as we've said, the prices for solar and wind have plummeted, and what we need to do now is see what the next price plummets will be that will help move the clean energy industry forward. I think we're looking at that in storage now. I think out in the future, we can also look forward to this in carbon capture. Uh, those are two areas that we will be focusing on heavily in the future. Let me give you a little idea of what our entrepreneurs work on now and, and what exactly we do at the Urban Future Lab. Um, so we, we run five programs here. The largest is the Acre Incubator that, as I mentioned, has been up and running since 2009. It's funded largely by NYSERDA um, and has received funding over the years from uh, many, many other corporates, including Shell, Toyota, Con Edison, New York Community Trust, Wells Fargo, Dakin. Uh, of course, NYU supports us yearly, as does NYSERDA. These are ongoing commitments. And in the Acre Incubator, since 2009, we've incubated 57 companies that all have market-ready solutions to climate change. It's a competitive process to get into the incubator. Normally, people stay about two years. 88% of our companies are still up and running since 2009, which is a terrific statistic for startups. That's not normal. That's almost the opposite of what usually happens. Um, we've created many hundreds of jobs in New York. Uh, our companies have raised approximately $500 million from the private sector. 
and these companies are working in many areas. They're working in building energy efficiency, smart grid, smart city, uh, EV technologies, storage technologies, and we've just taken in our first carbon capture company. We'll be doing more of that in the future. We also run um, several other programs. We have one that teaches uh, career-changing professionals, everything they need to know to enter the clean tech industry. So it's taught evenings and weekends um, in NYU's continuing ed program. And they do a capstone project at the end of the semester with one of our companies. And they graduate with a diploma in clean energy and are usually snapped up by the market right away. The clean energy economy is growing really rapidly in New York. We also have a program called PowerBridge New York that scales up academic IP from six downstate institutions. Um, we help them to commercialize by teaching them the i program. And we've recently started a program together with another large incubator that does what we do in Boston called Greentown Labs and with the Fraunhofer Institute that has an outfit in Boston. And this program is called H2 Refuel. We seek to scale up young hydrogen companies uh, we have down-selected from a group of about 70 applicants to just seven companies that are scaling up novel solutions to the hydrogen economy all through the value chain. And we give them a six-month program of workshops and introductions to mentors. They work together with uh, our sponsors for this, Toyota and Shell, to scale up these solutions so that they will be market-ready. Yeah, and I, we're doing a – pardon me? Uh, well, I, I noticed looking through your your past members, and I was a bit curious about this. You know, you have a, a, a nice list of success of good good companies, and a couple of really successful ones popped out to me. EV Box, which is the largest EV charging station uh, company in Europe, also in in the U.S. They, they and they got snapped up by NG, which is a major global energy company. Um, really, really great company doing good work and expanding rapidly. Uh, and Dandelion, which is a, a home geothermal energy company, which got snapped up by Google. Uh, so I'm just curious a little bit. These are these these are companies that used to be in your program, and and sort of what did you do with them or for them? Yeah. Of course, any specifics you can talk about would be great. But but I guess generally, if you can't get too specific, uh, just as a sort of a, a a clear example of how you help them out. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So. Um just to finish off one little thing that I left out, the fifth program at our institute is one we're doing with NIPA. We're helping them source EV technologies and storage for their grid. And that does bring me to EV Box. Um, EV Box is a good example of a company that we brought in from overseas as they were seeking to deploy in America. So as I said, we, we help companies that have market ready solutions to scale up. So we're very happy to bring in companies from overseas. We have two from Israel now, we have a couple from the UK. EV Box came to us from Amsterdam where they already had, I think 30,000 units deployed when they came to us. And we helped them as we do with all of our companies by making introductions to 
the New York ecosystem and the American ecosystem. Uh, we introduced them to channel to market partners here, to customers, to sources of venture capital funding, to grant dollars. In the case of EV Bucks, we introduced them to an incubator that we're affiliated with in Los Angeles called Lacey. Um, because the EV market was more mature in California, so they were able to go over to, to Lacey and sit there for several days at a time and get introductions from Lacey. So we, we help these companies in ways they could never help themselves if they just moved into an off-a-share situation. They're sitting in a community of like-minded individuals. Uh, we have people who are embedded in the ecosystem coming through all the time, and these introductions and the relationships within the community that sits here can prove to be very valuable. Uh, let me talk about Dandelion, uh, and let me correct um, your, your statement about Google. It actually worked the other way around. Um, Kathy oh. Hanun, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's Thank okay. Yeah. Kathy came out of Google. She was in the Google X program, and she worked on business model innovation more than technology. We have many companies here that uh, have a new business model, generally having to do with financing of clean energy. And this is important, as important to us in the deployment field as a new hard tech. We don't do a lot of hardware innovation here at the Urban Future Lab, because we're in New York, having that kind of space would be very difficult. And our partners at Greentown Labs have that kind of space in Boston. So there's a good space for that in the Northeast. We help an awful lot of companies with business model innovation. And Kathy's a great example. She came up with the idea that the barriers to home ground source heat pumps had everything to do with the first cost and the inappropriate equipment uh, and the fact that there are five different trades for a homeowner to have to deal with if they want to put in a ground source heat pump system. Uh, by the way, many people call this geothermal. It's a kind of a misuse of the word, but I'll call it geothermal because everybody else does. Uh, when a homeowner wants to put in a geothermal system, they have to hire an excavator, an HVAC person, an electrician, a plumber, and, and more. The coordination headache is terrible. And the first cost of drilling, excavating, and putting it all together can come out to be somewhere between twenty dollars and $50,000. Kathy had the insight that if she could get project finance for these and simply charge the homeowner $150 a month every year, winter, summer, spring, and fall, the system would be profitable for herself and the project finance companies that she works with. And the homeowner would not have that horrible first cost problem. In addition, she provides one neck to choke. It's a turnkey solution. There are no longer five contractors all pointing at each other saying it was somebody else's fault. Kathy takes the responsibility for the system. Also, people were using drilling technologies that are necessary for going down 10,000 feet when you're drilling a well, and that's unnecessary. You really just need to put in enough loops to pick up the 50, 55 degree temperature of the dirt or the stone under your building. You don't need to drill to the center of the earth. Um, so by minimizing the drilling equipment and right-sizing the ground source heat pump equipment that goes into the basement, she could bring down costs. So 
her whole vision was to make this simpler, to make it turnkey, and to eliminate the first cost. She has since gotten funding. She came into our incubator with about six people. And by the time she got to be about 20, we had to help her find another space because we just didn't have room for her. She grew very rapidly. She's gotten funding from terrific VCs. She's well on her way to success. She's terrific. And she, just, closed, yeah. she closed her A round the same day she gave birth to her first child. She's a spectacular person. <laughs> Very cool. I should, I should maybe disclose that they've both been sponsors. Uh, we, we were covering them before they sponsored. We were sponsors of Clean Technica, but they've both uh, run sponsorships with us. But, uh, well, an, an interesting thing you, you sort of bring up with this and, and previously with the lighting, um, this is sort of a, a funny issue with clean tech in general is that uh, because they're often renewable and, and efficient and uh, uh, cheap sources of, of, of energy or, or efficient technologies, clean tech is is often has a has a long term uh, financial case that's very strong. But then the upfront costs always uh, are, are sort of the, often the challenge. So that's the case with electric vehicles, where you get a much lower total cost of ownership with solar energy, where you have upfront costs, and I know fuel costs, of course, wind energy as well, even uh, lighting for a while. Now, now it's uh, less less of an issue. Um, so I can see that's that's something you've you've been focusing on a lot. You've highlighted uh, dealing with the kind of financing uh, platforms that are innovative and, and help solve these solutions. Um, and that also comes back to what I was asking earlier about you know ten years ago. I guess 15 years ago, <laughs> the the challenge was maybe more hardware related, and now it's the hardware solutions have gotten so good that it's less hardware related, more related to financing and other issues like awareness. Can you speak about? Are there any other sort of core pocket areas other than like financing and, and business models that you've decided to focus on? Whether it's awareness issues or policy issues or, or other obstacles. Yeah, there are some very important obstacles that people have not focused on. We're starting to, uh, I think I'm going to design a program around this that we can, that addresses some that have not yet been addressed. And these are the fact that the time to market for these companies is very long. Some of our companies have a two-year sales cycle, and that's because they're selling into industries that are very risk-averse, um, such as the utility industry and the real estate industry, extremely liability conscious. Um, in addition, the contracting requirements to work in those industries and even to get project finance are fairly onerous for a small, young company. Uh, one of our companies in the process of getting a very good um, deal on some green debt came across legal costs and accounting costs that ran into six figures and the company had to go raise around just to cover the legal and accounting costs in order to get the debt in order to do this new business model where he was eliminating first cost. So we want to try to put together single page sample contracts and Cyclotron Road has another incubator has worked on this as well and has made a very good start on this. We're working together with NIPA as we help them to find innovation on their grid to reduce the bureaucratic burden that slows down the process. You know, imagine that you're a small company, you've only got four or five people, you've got a great technology, you don't have time to fill out 100-page documents 
for the bank, for the insurance company, for the big utility that's signing up. Um, these contractual barriers are very important soft barriers that have to come down. So we're working on that that's, as well. That's really interesting. I mean, it's something I, I think it doesn't get a lot of thought if you're not a bit wonky about this stuff, but uh, highly regulated industries, of course, have a lot of laws and you know, you have to go, th- you have to go through a lot of laws and, and paperwork. Um, and uh, obviously, the, the electric industry, the energy industry in general, is very highly re- regulated for, for good reasons. Um, so it's an interesting thing that I, I haven't really, heard, like you alluded to, I haven't really heard people talk about it much or highlight it much. Uh, you mentioned earlier working with Lacey, Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, and, and others. Um, is it something that you discuss with them now and, and they're also working on or on developing programs around or solutions for, or is it something you're just doing on your own at this point? So, Well, we have a terrific partnership with many clean tech incubators across the country. Um, EPRI funds this organization called Incubate Energy. And together with the Department of Energy several years ago, they pulled us all together and uh, organized for us to meet a couple of times a year. Um, It's through that relationship that I have been able to work with Greentown Labs and Lacey and Cycloton Road and and many others. Uh, And it's been really beneficial for us to put our lessons learned together and, you know, I imagine, you, I imagine you sort of you sort of get together, you talk about, and then all of a sudden you realize perhaps like uh, structural or, or you know patterns of problems that you that you all face in this world that you maybe didn't really uh, were somewhat invisible. You know, I assume like where you you just see it as as a as a, a fact of life or something, and then you, when you see the pattern developing with others, you 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 identify, hey, this is something we should work on. Right, so we have uh, done exactly that. In fact, uh, Wells Fargo is also working with that group on a program called IN2. Uh, This is, they put out a challenge each year and we all, to, to the Incubate Energy companies, we send them our best companies to meet that challenge and very often we will design a program together with one of the other incubators to answer that challenge. One year it was metrics. How do we measure the real impact of our companies so that impact investors can look at any of these companies and figure out how many tons of CO2 we're each mitigating um, in a reliable way that can compare apples to apples. That was one year's program. Uh, This issue that I just mentioned about the soft barriers for contracting, et cetera, uh, where we've been talking to Cyclotron Road. Um, yes, we, we work well together. Uh, we're doing the hydrogen program with Greentown Labs, and we're just launching a new program with Greentown Labs that will address uh, pulling back the CO2 emissions that have already been emitted. This is going to be a carbon-to-value program that we're going to do with Greentown Labs. Uh, we are looking for funders, obviously, now, so it's, it's nice to get the word out there. Um, but the idea would be to help those companies that are using CO2 in ways that can create value, such as turning CO2 into next-generation plastics that are made from carbon emissions instead of made from petroleum. Or we have a company called the Air Company that's 
making vodka out of CO2 emissions, if you can believe that, it's a very high value end product. And if the end products are high value enough, such as carbon fiber or vodka or very specialized chemicals, then perhaps we could help to put a price on carbon so that it's not a waste material that you throw out into the atmosphere, but rather you have an incentive to pull it back and turn it into something. So uh, we're going forward with with Greentown and Fraunhofer to do this program, and you'll be hearing more about that in the future. Cool. And, and so I, I'm not sure if I interrupted in the, in the middle as we highlighted this um, these structural uh, problems that incubators face and you working with others. Were there other uh, key topics aside from uh, financing and contracts that um, that you're really focused on right now that you see as, as bottlenecks? Well, I, I did say that um, we have to look at the technologies that are now where solar was 20 years ago. And I'd say that's storage. There are some very interesting companies doing work in storage that address uh, bringing down the cost, uh, using something other than the existing battery chemistries. We need, we need solutions, not necessarily chemistry solutions, that can provide storage on a seasonal basis or on more than a four-hour basis at least. Yeah, batteries are very good for short-term storage. For long-term, you need something more like, um, well, hydrogen can be a good solution, uh, pumped hydro. um, So you're looking at other alternatives or or just improving some of these sort of longer-term storage solutions? Yes, we're looking across the gamut as we did with hydrogen. We're looking at many different types of storage. That would include thermal storage. That would include air compression to its liquid state. We have a company called Highview Power that uh, compresses the air to its liquid state during off-peak hours and then during high-peak hours releases that frozen air across a turbine and as it expands, it turns the turbine so you can actually manage your peak loads and shave peak usage by using this technology. And that's there, that you can store for weeks or months at a time yes. with limited loss, yeah? or Yes, with limited loss and uh, known technologies. You know, compressed air is, is not mysterious. Um, the technology is simple and cheap and has been known for years. We're just using it in a different way. Yeah, we, we actually we used to write about a lot more like, I don't know, five five to seven years ago. Um, and it sort of fell off the radar. I'm not really sure why, actually, because it, it seemed to, to be a good potential uh, solution. Any, anyway, so one other topic I'm, I'm quite curious about. I know you're focused on the business side of things, but obviously the business side inter- interacts with the policy side a lot. I'm just curious if you have any specific um, kind of uh, policy governmental policy or uh, topics that you're focused on or if you or if you have a kind of um, if you have some some thoughts on what needs to be done in that arena as well for these yeah well policy provides the market pull that is necessary so we're very dependent on policy um, we're very fortunate to be in New York State which is extremely forward-looking uh, In New York City, we've just passed the Climate Mobilization Act. In New York State, we've just passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. I can talk about those till the cows come home. I wrote an article in Cranes that talks about the things we need 
to fix and the Climate Mobilization Act, that one is a local law in New York City that will set a carbon emissions budget per square foot for every building over 25,000 square feet and penalties will kick in starting in 2024 if people don't meet their carbon budgets. Uh, there are a lot of wrinkles that have to be ironed out. There is a system in place for ironing out the wrinkles. There will be an advisory committee that amends this law as we solve for certain problems. I'm not going to go into them because I could do a whole hour on that alone. And we're, you know, in, in, across the country, we have 39 states that have renewable portfolio standards. We have California and New York that have gone way beyond renewable portfolio standards to have mandates for storage in addition to mandates for renewables, um, things like Local Law 97. Um, I think I heard Jay Inslee say at the opening of Climate Week in New York a couple of weeks ago that the states that have signed on to the Paris Accord are equal to 70 or 75 percent of world GDP. So we are all in. Yeah. You know, a lot of work is being done based on state policies. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't mean we're contributing to the fund at the UN that manages uh, these issues for poorer countries. But as far as future emissions go, we're doing pretty well on that score. The yeah, problem, one, the big one. problem we have to deal with is pulling past emissions back. Yeah, well, it's one of the the actually uplifting things in, in the in the U.S. policy political world is is the state leadership. Um, well, that's also, I mean, you get th those state. I mean, that's that's obviously a lot of states already big major states, but you've also already done a lot of difficult legwork that other states could potentially, um, you know, copy or or, or sl use and modify for for their own efforts going forward. Uh, something you know in that policy world that I've always found interesting is, you know, ALEC, that conservative uh, organization, A-L-E-C, does really effective job on the other side, sort of uh, writing model legislation and, and getting states to, to, to adopt uh, policies on, on that fits their, like, anti-regulation, anti pro-pollution, I'll say, agenda. Uh, and I'm just curious, do you know of much that goes on in, in this space that could, you know, be comparable, but you know, to, to advance clean tech, uh, not just in New York, Washington, uh, California, but even in places like, you know, uh, Kansas, Iowa, Alabama, North Dakota, uh, and anything like that? Well, there, there are not-for-profits all over this country working on this issue, you know, primarily NRDC and EDF. Uh, there are many of them. Of course, their firepower doesn't compare to the oil and gas industry and the coal industry, and we're getting there. Against all odds, we're getting there. Okay, so another uh, question, just uh, obviously you've talked about a lot of interesting different uh, programs and, and industries. Um, it's impressive how much you know about several different industries, which you know you really have to stay on top of things to, to, to learn about. Um, well, uh, is there anything that are, are there any specific topics that really excite you? I mean, beyond the normal, you know, that you, you find yourself up late at night, you know, 11, 12, one, uh, 
researching uh, on your own just because it's so fascinating. Are there any really favorites here? <laughs> You're getting to my inner wonk here. Um, I, I grapple, you know, late at night with the problems of transmission and NIMBY. You know, in New York City especially, uh, if we want Local Law 97 to be successful, not only do we have to do a very aggressive program of energy efficiency for buildings, but if we're asking buildings not to burn fossil fuel in their basements, we have to bring them electricity. And if we're going to move the winter peak from heating with fossil fuels to heating with electricity, then we need to bring more electricity into the city. And those transmission problems are mind boggling. There are NIMBY problems, there are issues of jurisdiction. Um, you know, it's unlike the EU, we don't have one governing body that tells us here's how it's going to go down. We have many different, even in New York State, if I'm talking about transmission to New York City, we have many different counties many different towns who are all screaming NIMBY, I don't want transmission lines here. Um, we have the Hudson River and the PCB problem. If you want to drop a line into the river, that's going to be hard. So trying to bring clean energy generated in Canada or on the New York side of Niagara Falls or even at huge wind farms upstate is going to be very difficult. Bringing in wind from the new nine gigawatts of, of offshore wind that we will have in New York because NYSERDA is so forward-looking and because the governor is so forward-looking. Thank goodness, that's, yes. That's, that's fantastic, <laughs> but the transmission problems keep me awake at night. Well, it's, I mean, that's a fascinating topic in general, especially for, you know, yeah, um, wonks in this field, but also right now it's relevant not just where you are, of course, but where in California, you've got this issue of PG&E um, having rolling blackouts because of their uh, kind of transmission risks with wildfires and whatnot. Uh, it's quite a different situation, of, uh, but it's, it's interesting that it's, again, this transmission challenge. Uh, is there anything on the, on the federal level? You know, you mentioned the EU is more. Uh, is there anything on the federal level that you think would just be like at the top of a, a Christmas wish list for you if, if you could if you could have it if you had? Uh, you know, I have to I have to confess that I am just ignoring the federal level right now. It's much and better I, for your I mental guess, health. I guess it's, what it's, I it's good for your sanity and your mental yes. health. <laughs> I, I'm obsessed with it, which is really. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. What I can say is that the ARPA-E program is spectacular. Right. Um, you know, in, in spite of all the problems at the federal level, ARPA-E is something all of the incubators have lobbied for. We went around together, the heads of the incubators, to many Republican senators last time there was a budget vote, and we talked to them about the number of wind and solar jobs in their district and how this was job creation, and that funding the work that goes on at our ARPA-E would eventually create jobs in their well, areas. Well, nice, I mean, a nice thing about clean tech nowadays is that there are really, uh, there's a lot of clean energy leadership in some red states, some Republican states, so the, so the political representatives there uh, can be quite supportive of renewable energy, even if they won't come together on. on. But I guess so. My, I guess a, a question, 
more specific question of, uh, along those lines was um, if you could just you know wipe the slate clean, just forget who's in power. If just you had an ideal kind of situation, is there any maybe not silver bullet, but any like uh, specific policies that you're just like, man, I wish we just had this across the U.S. It would make all of these, it would make this challenge locally much easier. No one else would have to mess with this challenge. Uh, well, a carbon price. A price on carbon is the, you know, uh, there is no silver bullet, but this would be awfully big buckshot, right? It would be great and, to have but, a price I mean, on carbon. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, and I, I mean, obviously, this this has been, uh, it's been challenging trying to figure out how to move that topic forward, uh, even when we, when we had more control in the, in the legislature. But I guess on the transmission topic, is there anything like... Is it all local? Is it all going to be like local forever, local challenges, you know, regional challenges? Or is there something that, would, you know, just if the Department of Energy had a specific policy or, or, or something on transmission would, would make your life easier? So I don't know how that would work. Um, you know, we have our New York ISO. We have our Public Service Commission. We have several utilities. I have no idea how it's structured yeah. You know, whether this is something FERC could pull together, I, I'm the wrong person to ask. That's not my area of expertise. Yeah, no, that's getting very wonky. I just, since, since it was a topic that you stay up at midnight yeah. learning, <laughs> I was curious, curious to see if uh, there was something that I had not heard of that would be really uh, ideal. I mean, that's, yeah. Uh, well, th that's all interesting stuff. I, um, I guess just to close, maybe um, any final uh uh, topics that you want to highlight or, or, or startups or uh, programs. And, and I, I guess we can say real quickly, your website is so easy to, um, so the URL is so short, short, you know, people can go to UFL, uh, like urban future lab, UFL.NYC. Uh, and that's your website. And you can do backslash members to see who's, who's in the, who's in there now backslash programs to see these five programs you you highlighted really interesting stuff i think we, we could do deep dives on probably every company every every program uh so any any final thoughts that you know that you want to share on on anything well thank you for mentioning that um if companies want to apply to the incubator there is an apply button on there at ufl.nyc there's also an annual competition we generally launch it towards the end of November. Um, it's judged on Earth Day at a public event that's really a very exciting one at the World Trade Center. We have all kinds of dignitaries and important people show up. I'm not gonna reveal who they are yet, um, but it's a great day. So enter the competition if you're a young company. If you're someone who wants to learn more, come to the competition event. You can sign up on our website for our newsletter and find out when we're doing a call for entries or when we're running programs. I, I, I assume and hope uh, AOC is going to be uh, helping <laughs> helping advance the cause. Uh, but uh, are sealed. We have we have some very special people coming. She's she's definitely a gem of our generation. I mean, just so talented at communication, at at cutting through uh, noise and nonsense and getting to the core of issues. Uh, it's no no surprise that she's been heavily attacked from day one. Uh, quite quite a quite incessantly but um well thank you so much for what you're doing this is uh i mean it's it's hard to even imagine the scale of influence you're having the uh the impacts are i'm sure Im immeasurable but gigantic uh and thank you for sharing your your time to discuss um 
what you've been working on and your your insights on some of these industries. So thank you, Zach, for all that you do. It's my pleasure to talk to you, and I'm delighted that you're getting this information out in the world. Thank you so much for what you do. Have a good day. And listeners uh, for Clean Tech Talk, uh, hopefully check in again next week to get your electric fix. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.